0: Archaeology is a search for fact, not truth. If it's truth you're interested in, the philosophy class is right down the hall. So forget any idea you've got about lost cities, exotic travel and digging up the world. We do not follow maps to bury treasure and X never ever marks the spot. 70% of archaeology is done in the library, researching, reading. We cannot afford to take mythology at face value.
1: I think that's the most earnest thing about archaeology that Indiana Jones has ever said. So hello and welcome to yet another episode of Chipping Away where your host Saka Shindurga takes you on journeys of South Asia and its archaeology and anthropology. Today we are going to look at what happens from library to lab when you're out exploring archaeologically. Yes.
0: When we do undertake fieldwork. There is a lot of work that goes into it before we leave for the field, while we are at the field and what we do in the course of our field work. It all starts at the library.
1: In the library, we start with a problem that we want to investigate in an archaeological excavation. For that, we collect as many or sometimes as little sources as we can get our hands on. May it be ancient literature, some survey maps, travel logs or some ancient archives from the bygone era. So, for example, a text, a Greek text, called as Periplus of Erythrean Sea, gave us some insights about the port sites along the west coast of India. And from then, from the Greek traveler's account, we know of the old names of ports of Sopara, Thana, and other famous ports along the western coast of India up to Kerala. Interesting, isn't it?
0: very but it's not just literature in this modern age with all its fancy technology we also have access to a lot more technological avenues one such thing is satellite imagery what everybody uses these days in the form of google earth we can also use that to identify various features on the landscape that we can investigate by doing this we can identify certain areas that have a lot of potential for archaeological work.
1: For example, in forested areas we can investigate the potential of the site by using a technology called as LIDAR. LIDAR actually means light detection and ranging, hence the term or the acronym LIDAR.
0: Yes, with LIDAR what we do is that we have drones that emit uh, lasers that go through the forest cover to understand the underlying uh, topography of the region. Through this we can identify how the ground actually looks like without having to step onto the ground and it's primarily used in areas where you have thick forests and jungles such as uh, Central America or Southeast Asia.
1: And if we were to translate this same technology for underwater landforms we use a technology by the name sonar which uses the same principle of mapping the sub-water surfaces. Exactly.
0: But instead of light and lasers, it uses sound waves. That's right. Sonar. Yes. So now that we know what to do before we go into the field, we have our question already in hand. We've identified possible areas that we could survey to answer this question. We travel to these areas and once we get there, We do a lot of walking. We walk and walk and walk.
1: And probably keep walking even more. Sometimes we collect soil samples, look at the landforms around us, look at old sites that were previously researched on and talk to the people who inhabit these landforms. So when we walk through these villages, we talk to the people and try and get an insight about the local landscape.
0: We get a lot of information from the local inhabitants of the area because they have an intricate understanding and relationship with their land. So, they know the histories associated with it. They know what stories are related to it. They know what is common and what is unique. And once we get to know and talk to them, we know what areas we can focus on.
1: Right. For example, sometimes the villagers ascribe certain mythological characteristics or some ancient attributes to certain landforms. For example, they talk of some rocket caves in Western India as residences of Pandavas from Mahabharata during exile. So we are not investigating the mythological part of it, but what we know from such accounts is the antiquity of the place. And if we go and investigate, let's say, cave temples or rocket caves in this example, we can actually stumble upon some ancient remains and some markers of the landforms that would tie in our archaeological inquiry. Exactly.
0: And doing all of these things, we can identify certain points of interest that we can further uh, undertake research on. So once these preliminary surveys are done and we've identified these areas' points of interest, what we go about doing is undertake test pitting or trial trenching.
1: Right, so we don't start digging right away with the shovel. No,
0: no, not yet. And even after this, once we find out what lies buried, we still select only one or two sites where we can conduct large-scale excavation.
1: Right, so it's not an arbitrary digging away or taking away of soil from the landforms, but a systematic, well-thought-of process to answer only the questions, the research questions that we have framed for our investigation. Yes.
0: Excavation is the systematic destruction of the site and hence we should ensure we do as little of it as possible and mostly geared to the questions we have in hand.
1: Right, so when we take the test trenches or the test pits, we excavate a small area and try and get an idea of what lies beneath. Exactly. And
0: well... As we are excavating and we are destroying the site, we need to ensure we record and document everything because once destroyed, it's very difficult to reconstruct. So that because for us, what is more important or as equally important of the artifact is the archaeological context.
1: So we can say that the context reigns supreme.
0: Indeed. How do we do our excavations? Well, there are three kinds of excavations that we have. Vertical. Horizontal and quadrant. To understand the entire time sequence or history of the site, we undertake vertical excavations. When we take a vertical excavation, say for example, uh, any multicultural site or a site that has multiple periods and layers of occupation, you will find these different layers. So, for example, layer 1 could be a Harappan site, layer 2 could be a post Harappan occupation. Layer 3 could be a historical period occupation, and layer 4 could be a modern occupation. So, by taking a vertical excavation, we reconstruct the entire chronology and sequence of events that happened at the
1: site. So, vertical excavation in layman's terms is just a deep ditch, right? Where we can see all the layers of soil and its different coloration and sort of look at how many years this site was occupied or under activity.
0: Yes, and what are the different kinds of occupations that were there at this site? That's right. Once we find the layer that we are interested in to answer our question, what we can then do is a horizontal excavation. So we expand horizontally along the landscape with the area that we want to investigate. So for example, in our previous example, we have Harappan, Historic, So, we just focus on the Harappan and expand on that, if our question was related to the Harappan, If it was of another period, we focus on that.
1: Right, and then you'll start excavating horizontally. That is, you'll expand the area of digging.
0: Yes. And while we dig, we find various features, such as pits, homes, possible fortresses, and various such features.
1: And sometimes pottery, sculptures, bricks, toy figurines, and interesting artifacts. But again, context is more important than the individual artifact itself.
0: That's true. And sometimes we find these small structures which we can't completely excavate, or rather we don't want to completely destroy. So what we do is we make it into four quadrants, and we just probably excavate one or two quadrants, preserving the rest of the feature. So that is what is a quadrant excavation.
1: So can we think of quadrant excavation like cutting a pie? Yes,
0: exactly. Or a pizza. I'm more biased towards Mm -hmm. some pizza myself. So just imagine you have a circular structure and you're just taking one slice out of it. And voila, that quadrant is what's excavated. So you can identify what is in the feature.
1: Speaking of circular structures and excavating circular structures, I think excavation of a stupa will be a quadrant method.
0: Most stupas are excavated using a quadrant method, as also uh, stone circles, it features such as a uh, stone henge, which is not a henge as such, but it's a big arrangement of stones. So mostly any circular feature as well as certain pits and other features are excavated using a quadrant method.
1: And even when we are excavating, may it be quadrant, vertical or horizontal. Be- Try and peel tiny layers one at a time instead of shoveling hard, like going five feet down or something like that. That's true. And
0: when we excavate, we could either excavate uh, using the natural geological layers. So, for example, we focus on one uh, layer, excavate that, then go to the second layer below it. Or we can make artificial gaps, say 5 centimeters, 10 centimeters, 15 centimeters, and dig according to those.
1: And as we go on digging from the ground surface to, to the depths of the earth, so to speak, recording is very important as to what we record in each tiny dig that we take. So the quality of soil, the artifact that you find, the color of soil, other associated features, and so on and so forth. I think the list goes on
0: and the context context yes. is the most important so context of the find sometimes helps in understanding both the function of the artifact the function of the structure and even the function of the site as a whole so let's take for example a simple archaeological artifact clay figurine imagine you find this clay figurine in a small niche or a corner of the house and it's associated with say other possible ritualistic or religious paraphernalia yeah that is one example or you find the clay figurine in another part of the house with broken pieces of pottery some broken toy fragments rattles or broken bangle fragments you that's a that's also the same artifact but it's found in a completely different association So in one, we could assume that the clay figurine had some religious purposes. And in the other, we can say that the clay figurine was most probably a toy.
1: Right. So I think even though we are looking at the same object, the context changes how we interpret the object. Exactly.
0: And at the end of the day, the archaeological record is quiet. It's our job to interpret it and give it a voice.
1: The last aspect of archaeological fieldwork is salvage archaeology. In salvage archaeology, the archaeological data is documented, recorded and preserved for future generations in extraneous circumstances. Now, what are these extraneous circumstances or extraordinary circumstances? So, for example, in cases where a dam is being built or a mining project is proposed at a site, the archaeological data or some of the artifacts Building material and other material sources are recorded for further enqu- enquiry. An excellent example of salvage archaeology is the site of Nagarjuna Konda in Guntur district of Andhra Pradesh. At this site, uh, the dam Nagarjuna Sagar was proposed, and the site of Nagarjuna Konda was documented, recorded, and some of the artif- archaeological data was salvaged from the site that is relocated from the low-lying areas to higher elevation areas. This enabled future generations of archaeologists to be able to look at the artifacts and archaeological data firsthand and analyze and study it further.
0: And thus ends our journey from the library to the lab. Join us again next time when we take another journey into how we do South Asian archaeology at this new podcast Chipping Away Do drop in your suggestions And comments at us And also If you have any themes You'd like us to work on Let us know on our Twitter page See you guys Bye-bye. Until next time